Heavenly Father, Lord, we have come here this morning because we want to know you more. Lord, I pray that you would be working through your spirit and through your word. Lord, that you would bring alive the truths that you have for each and every single one of us. Lord, I pray that for us as a congregation, you would make us receptive, tender, and listening ears to the message you have for us. And Lord, I pray for Cameron. I pray the same thing also, Lord, that you would give him a tender and receptive heart to your spirit's leading. Lord, that you would be his divine editor. Mm -hmm. Lord, I ask that today you might be glorified through the proclamation of your word. And Lord, we give this time and set it aside for you and for your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, friends. How are you? Good. Good. My name is Cameron, one of the pastors here, as Pastor Luke had already said. Um, we are we're going to do our best this morning to make it through a significant part of, the, of Paul's letter to the Roman church. Um, if you had been at Conduit for any, um, for like back in the fall, you know that we were studying the book of Romans and, or the letter to the Romans and had made our way through about six chapters of it or so. And it's important that, um, it's important that in some regards that we kind of follow the flow of Paul's thought and his, um, for lack of a better term, his argument in the letter because he t- he does take a progression and he does build um, he does build upon things as the letter as the letter progresses. So it sometimes makes it difficult to grab a passage if we were to start in chapter six here and just continue on in Romans where we left off right before Advent. Kind of would make it difficult to say, okay, well, what is Paul saying in relation to the things that he's already said? And so we want to take a little bit of time this morning to do our best at a six-chapter flyby review of the first six chapters of Romans. Now, listen, I tried to do this on Wednesday night, our uh, Wednesday night Bible study, and um, there was about 40 of us or so there at our Wednesday night Bible study, and I will tell you, we (laughs) did not make it through six chapters. Um, we made it through about one and a half to two, uh, but it was a great time in the Word, and we had a lot of great, um, we had a great, a lot of, a lot of insight to the Word and a lot of great conversation. So, um, my hope here is just to help us maybe understand a little bit of Paul's thought, to hear the Lord in it um, once again, and uh, to ask the Lord, all right, Lord, what, what would you have to say to me? What would you have to say to us? Because next week, we're going to continue on um, in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Romans, uh, and we'll do that here for the next, uh, the next month or so, month, next month, a month and a half or so. So, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up to Romans. Okay? Romans is in the New Testament of the Bible. If you're not familiar uh, with the Bible, that's okay. We hope to help you get familiar with it. The New Testament is the portion that's in the back of the Bible. Uh, so it's the kind of the back third of your Bible, and it starts out in the book of Matthew, which is one of the Gospels, and there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then the rest of the letters, or the rest of the books in the New Testament of the Bible, typically are letters. 
uh, letters from individuals to churches or groups of churches. And so when we say a book of the Bible, we're almost always talking about a letter to the Bible or a letter to an individual church um, or uh, person. Uh, Romans is a couple books after uh, the, the gospel. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then you have Acts, the book of Acts, and then you have the letter to the Romans, okay? Um, so uh, we, we're going we're gonna to try and do uh, a, a, few key, a few key points here. If you read in Romans, you'll see that Paul starts out by pointing out what is kind of or what seems relatively obvious um, to the world. Anyone who has their eyes, anyone who has their eyes open, uh, anyone who is pay, paying attention to the world around us would come to the conclusion, maybe, maybe would define it a little bit different, differently, but would come to the general conclusion that something is horribly, horribly, horribly wrong in the world. That there is a, that there is a brokenness, that there is a, the words that Paul uses, that there is a wickedness, and that there is a godlessness that is rampant among the whole world. And what Paul says here is that not only is that the wickedness and godlessness rampant and everywhere, but that God is, God is positioned to respond to that wickedness, to respond to the godlessness, to respond to evil, to respond to and in places where um, things have gone awry or things are broken. In fact, in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it says, not only is God prepared to respond, but that it's actually his wrath that is prepared to respond. That the wrath or the anger or the justice of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, when we talk about, when we talk about evil, when we talk about godlessness, when we talk about wickedness, we're all, I think sometimes we, have, we, get an, we get a picture in our mind of the thing in the world that is the most wicked, right? The thing in the world that is the most ungodly. The thing, maybe it's the one sin, maybe it's the one situation, maybe it's the one example, maybe it's the one, it's the one experience, right? Maybe, it, maybe there's a thing that we get in our mind like, yeah, this is, this is the perfect example of what we're talking about, what Paul is talking about when he talks about wickedness and godlessness and how God is revealing his wrath against those things. Um, both from the specific to the general, um, Paul leaves kind of no stone unturned here in chapter one of describing all of the various ways across the whole kind of pantheon of examples of wickedness and godlessness that exist and what God does in response to it. He starts out this um, in, in 18 and goes through the rest of the chapter, verses 18 through 32 in Romans chapter, in Romans chapter 1. But some of these things that, that, Paul, that, that Paul lays out kind of starts in verse 24, with like a, the specific list and leaves nothing unturned. He says, therefore, God, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
They worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, and in the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with, another, with, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. In verse 28, Paul goes on to say, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, every type of evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice, and they are gossips and slanderers and God-haters and insolent and arrogant and boastful. They have invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decrees and that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And so it seems like Paul begins to create a list and that there are some, the proverbial person here and us, even in our own application now, are like, yeah, there is a lot of wickedness and godlessness out there. There is a lot of, there, there is a lot of suppressing the truth of God and rejecting the truth of God out there. And man, am I, am I super happy that none of that wickedness and godlessness, none of that rejection of the truth of God, none of that suppression of the truth of God, none of that self-idolatry is in here, right? It's all out there. It's all, it's all those, it's, it's the other people, right? It's, it's never, it's never us. Okay? Uh, well, Paul seems intent on making sure that no one is left out of this conversation, right? And you can see that kind of in the way that even he he makes that list at the end of chapter uh, at the end end of chapter one. They've been filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, or God's haters, insolent, arrogant. They disobey their parents. They're senseless. They're faithless. They're heartless. They're ruthless. In a way, Paul is like, I want everyone to hear me very very clear. No one is left off of this list. No one. Right? There, is not, there, is, there, there is not one person who does this special sin that happens to be more wicked or more ungodly or more deserving of the revelation of God's wrath than anyone else. Is that they are all, we're, we're, we're all under, we are all under and in danger of the same wrath of God being revealed against us. And in fact, it goes on, it, Paul, Paul says here in these first couple of chapters that God has, God has already started to reveal his wrath against this wickedness and godlessness. And how, how does Paul say that this has already begun to happen? There's a few verses here in chapter one, like verse 21, verse 24, uh, verse 26, and verse 28 where Paul says essentially the same thing. And I, I want us to be really clear to hear this and to understand it. Uh, I think this is a, a very uh, a, a point of significant application for my life and yours now. Talked a little bit about this Wednesday in our Bible study is this. Several points here, Paul says words similar to this. Um, for instance, verse 21 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were, were darkened, okay? And if you jump down to 24, he says essentially the same thing. He says, therefore, or because of this wickedness or in the midst of this wickedness, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. And in verse 26, he says something very similar. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And then in 28, he comes back around and says essentially the same thing. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what not or what ought not be done. What is the dynamic or the reality here that Paul is talking about? Um, it seems that what Paul is saying is that there, there, is a, there is a restraining grace of God in our lives that by virtue of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us through faith in Jesus Christ, the, the Holy Spirit speaks conviction and calls us to repentance for the wickedness of our lives and our hearts. Right? That, that when we are in, when we are in the midst of sin, as Christian people, the Holy Spirit speaks conviction into our hearts. Don't do that. Um, don't say that. Um, exit that relationship. Um, cease that behavior, whatever that, whatever it is, right? You ever um, if if you have been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, right? And you have the Holy Spirit in you, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's that, it's that point where you get an overwhelming sense of the Lord's voice in your spirit saying, no, don't, or, or stop, or don't go any further, or like <laughs> drop and back away slowly, right? And in those moments, we have an opportunity, right? Because the Lord... Because the, the Lord's love is complete in our lives, he does not force our hand to do anything. Meaning if we want to walk away from him, if we want to sprint away from him, we, we, are, we are given the freedom to do so, right? Um, but, but through our relationship, if we, if we time and time and time and time and time and time again hear the voice of the Lord, saying, don't, no, stop, turn around. And we're like, yeah, but, but I really want to. Or, uh, um, yeah, but like, I think I'm going to do it anyway. Right? Where, where, where we essentially do one of these, fingers in the ears of our spirit, right? And we make the la, 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 la sound. I can't hear you, Lord. I can't hear you. I'm going to continue to do what it is that I want to do despite the conviction that I hear and see and feel in my life, right? But the Lord says that over time, when wickedness and godlessness persists in our life with no heeding of the voice of the Holy Spirit, that our heart, that he, he, actually, he actually gives us over to the darkness and the wickedness and the depravity that we have progressively chosen over time. 
So much so that how Paul describes it is that our hearts are darkened and hardened to the continuous voice of the Spirit of God speaking conviction to us. So in the midst of our obedience with the Lord, there exists in our life a restraining grace, a pre- the presence of the grace of God that restrains us from fully from falling headfirst into the darkness and wickedness that our heart would choose had it not been for the Lord. Right? But after periods of time where we're like, no, Lord, I'm not, no, Lord, no, 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 Lord, no, Lord, no, Lord. Finally, the Lord kind of lets go of the proverbial rope that has been holding us back from our utter destruction and says, if you want, have it. Have it then. He gives us over to a depraved heart. He gave them over to shameful lusts. He gives them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Their foolish hearts become darkened. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Brothers and sisters, this is so this is so incredibly important. Okay? So incredibly important that when you hear the voice of the Lord calling you to repentance, when you hear the voice of the Lord telling you to turn away from your sin, to repent of the darkness and hardness of your own life and to turn towards him in repentance. Do not close your ears to his voice because his grace will not fight with you forever. He will give you over to the shameful things of your life if you desire without any, without any consideration for what he's trying to do in your life. He will give you over to it and it will destroy you. It will destroy you. It will darken and harden your heart so much to the point that you no longer hear the voice of the Lord. And the things that, the things that you want, you know, okay, there should be a clue here in our own lives, right? How do I know? The question is, how do I know if that's the direction that I'm going? All right? Here's one way that I would answer that question. Are there things in your life that you no longer that you know that you know are sin that you no longer experience conviction over that you once did that at one point i remember i remember significantly feeling knowing hearing the conviction of the lord the call to repentance the voice of the holy spirit saying turn from that turn from that walk away Walk away, danger, warning signs, danger, danger. But now, yeah, I, I don't, I'm still doing that, but I don't, really, I don't really hear that anymore. I don't really hear that anymore. God must be okay with it now. It's normalized, it's generalized, it's rationalized in my life, right? Well, listen, the Lord does not change his mind on sin, okay? He, he's not like, oh, well, it's 2023 now. I think probably that sin is 
we'll just not think about that. We'll, we'll, that one will be okay now, right? It's, it's, it's not the way that the Lord works. It's not the way that his word works. It's not the way that the conviction of the Holy Spirit works. And so if there is things that you have fallen under conviction of before, but you have not heeded the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life about it, but now you just no longer sense or hear or feel the conviction of the Spirit, then look, listen, uh, there's danger, brothers and sisters. There's danger there. Turn from your sin. Allow, uh, allow the voice of the Holy Spirit that is speaking now about that thing to be the call to confess and repent of that. Do not harden do not harden your heart even in this moment to say, well, I just can't do it or I won't do it or the consequences of me actually repenting, that it, require, it would require too much of me. It would take me in a direction that I don't want to go. Listen, the enemy will always tell you that the direction that the Lord wants to take you is the wrong one. It will be too hard. It's easier to go this way. The enemy is fantastic about over-promising and under-delivering because you know the direction that you have been walking already is a direction that has been leading you only to darkness and has never produced significance or life for you. It's only produced darkness. It's only produced destruction. It's only produced hopelessness. It's only produced fear. It's only produced hurt. Repent of it. And, and, and repent of your refusal to hear the Lord and turn towards him and receive from him the gentleness and the kindness of his grace that is patient and calls you to repentance. It's chapter one. Uh, we're not trending well. Um, but what put it was Paul say? Paul, like, remember I say that Paul is Paul Paul builds here, right? Because Paul talks all about in chapter one about all of this sin and all of this wickedness and all of this godlessness and the darkness and hardening of the hearts of those who are not heeding the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I think he kind of imagines um, the proverbial person who stands there listening to this letter and is cheering Paul on for, for really giving it to all those sinners, right? Yeah, Paul, you, you tell them. You, you tell all those wicked and godless and dark and heart-hearted um, people. You, you, you tell them what to do. Glad we're not. Glad that's not us, but you tell them what, you, you tell them what we think, Paul, Right? Because the next few chapters, Paul, I think he anticipates that attitude, that hardness, that darkness of our own hearts, that judgment that exists within our own souls, and he goes right after it. He goes right after it. Um, in, verse, or in chapter 2, we see in verse 1 and 2, he says this. He says, um, you, you, therefore, you have no excuse Notice here that he, he no longer is addressing the, 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 the sinner that exists in all the lists of the sin. 
he's addressing the person who's looking at the sinner that has all the sins, right? And he says this, he says, you, therefore, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point, for what, at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. A couple points that we have here from chapter two, all right, from this point of chapter two, is this. Listen, understand this, hear it, internalize it, right? Make it be a guard of your mouth and a guard of your heart when you see the other person and and, and and the response of, kind of the visceral, fleshly response is like, well, I'm glad I'm not like them. Or what I, I, I'm going to talk to that person about the sin that I see in their life. I'm going to get them right. I'm, I'm going to be the one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one that tells them, hey, did you know that you're sinning? And they're going to turn. Listen, um, all what Paul says here is that is that any bit of judgment that I have towards another person can only be done from a place of hypocrisy. That, 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 that there is there is only one place, there is only one place that my judgment of another's sin can be done from. And that's from the place of hypocrisy. That's exactly what he says here in uh, verse 1 and verse 2. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you do the same things. That our judgment of others is only and can ever be done from a place of a hypocritical heart knowing that Right? There is darkness and wickedness and godlessness and hardness in our own lives. But it's not that judgment for sin in someone else's life doesn't exist. It's that judgment for sin in someone else's life is not our job because we do not stand in a place of integrity, spiritual integrity of being able to um, offer judgment. Paul goes on to say, there is someone who stands in a place of integrity and is able to offer judgment, and that is God, because his judgment comes from a place of what? Truth, right? That our our judgment can only come from a place of hypocrisy because we ourselves do the very same thing, Paul says, but that God's judgment is based upon the truth. Now we know in verse 2 that God's judgment against those who do such things is based upon truth. So brothers and sisters, let us not be eager to judge others because we will not escape the judgment of God of us. How does he how does he more fully explain this um, that, that is Paul? You keep going on in Romans chapter 2, you'll see that he, he talks to 
um, he talks to a Jewish person, the uh, proverbial Jewish person, right? And Paul's whole letter to the Romans here is about, um, is about the relationship that the gospel of Jesus Christ has with the Jew, who is, or uh, the Jewish person, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people who are the covenant people of God, right? They have the law, they have the promise of the covenant, they have the outward mark of being the covenant um, people of, um, of God in circumcision. And, and, and what, what Paul says here is he, he begins to address the Jew who stands at a place of um, seeming religious superiority because they have all of the things and promises and marks and covenants of God, but they look upon the Gentile person for whom Jesus also came to die and said, well, if you look at those Gentiles, they're not very religious or spiritual like we are. They don't follow the law. They don't have circumcision. They're not a people of the covenant. They're not a descendant of Abraham. They're not like us. Us Jewish people, like we, we hold religious superiority and those Gentiles, they're just a bunch of, they're just a bunch of sinners. All of them. Look at them. Look at what they do and don't do. Can you believe them? Right? And so Paul, a Jew himself, right, goes after them. He goes after the heart of that. He says in verse 17, now, you, if, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law, if you brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will, if you approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are dark, if an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because you have the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, um, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? He basically says, hey, look, you, you hold all of these like religiously superior ideals. I have the law and I teach the law and I instruct people in the law and I lead others to faithfulness in God. But, but does your life reflect that, 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 that those are things that you actually do yourself? I encourage people, I, I encourage people to forgive those who have hurt them, but I am living with bitterness and anger, and thoughts of revenge on those who have hurt me, right? And so Paul essentially says, you know, listen, are, are, you, are you espousing to others or requiring that others um, be, be obedient to the law of the Lord and to follow Jesus fully and to turn their heart towards them, but on the other side of your life, if you flip the proverbial coin, there is nothing but a complete rejection of all of the things that you were telling others that they must do, that they should do, that is God's will and obedience for them. He was like, listen, you're not fooling anyone. That's the, that's the heart and foundation of hypocrisy. But he says something so 
extraordinarily poignant, right? At the end in verse 29, I think it is. No, 24. He says this, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What is he talking about? What he's talking about here is that is that a Jewish person, right? He's, that's the example, right? But like we're going to apply it to ourselves here this morning, right? That a, that a, that a, that a person who who on this side is like, you need, to, you need to forgive that person and you need to set them free and you need to confess that sin and you need to repent and walk the other way and you need to make sure that you're, that you're, that you're responding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. You're, you're encouraging others to do one thing, but over here, you're sitting in a heart of unwillingness. I'm not forgiving that person. They hurt me and I'm angry and they don't deserve it and da-da-da-da-da, right? And like, and, and you don't know what they did to me. Like, Listen, he says that the name of God is blasphemed among those who don't believe in him because of the hypocrisy between what we are requiring others to do and what we are willing to do ourselves. He says it's not even any longer a reflection just on your own willingness to heed the, heed the um, voice of the Holy Spirit in your spiritual life, but now your hypocrisy is, is moving others to blaspheme the very name of God. And you know this to be true because every single one of you, I bet, have heard like, yeah, Jesus, I'm down with Jesus. I'm cool with him. Want, like, follow him, obedient, want to be a follower of Jesus. But Christians, man, no. I don't want anything to do with them because they say one thing and they do the other, Right? Or you have people who will be like, if that's what it means to follow God, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, then forget that. I don't want anything to do with following the Lord if all that Christianity is is the big giant gap of hypocrisy between what they make me do and what I see as fruit and evidence in their own life. And so what Paul is saying is like, listen, we have 0% business, 0% business about making sure or being, being the judge, jury, and executioner of someone else's spiritual life when, when the reality of our own spiritual life over here is that we so des- we are so, as a judgmental person, we are so desperately in need of the saving power of the gospel for us, just as much, if not more, than the person who is like completely separate from the Lord needs the power of the gospel to save them as well. That the power, that the power of the, the saving power of the gospel is the saving power of the gospel to save the religiously judgmental person, just as it is the power of the gospel to save the person who has never responded to the call of Jesus upon their heart before. That the gospel is for both. That the gospel is to both. That the gospel is to all. And this is the main point of Paul's letter to the Romans. He says this in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel 
because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And this is exactly the point of Jesus' parable of the lost son, or you probably know it better as the prodigal son, right? The love of the father needed to exist for who? The son that ran away? The son that was far from the father? Yes. But who was equally lost in the condition of their heart, even though the outward example of their life showed them to be the loyal son, the hardworking son, the son that stayed, right? There was two sons in that, in that um, uh, parable, right? The son that ran away and squandered his life, the son that stayed faithful, loyal. I'm not abandoning my father, right? Until what? Until he had to come face to face with the son that was, that left in sin, right? And then all of a sudden, the son that stayed and was loyal and that was faithful was like, well, what about, what? why are you being so loving to him, father? Don't you see how faithful and loyal I have been? And the father's like, um, I'm not sure you understand, right? What is, what is the point at, then of the parable becomes it's like, listen, it's not just the son that left that needs the power of the gospel. It's the son that stayed that needs the power of the gospel. That the gospel is not just, we, we, we always think, right, that the gospel is for the really lost and wicked and godless and sinners among us. And we forget that us godless and wicked and sinners who follow Jesus Christ, right, also need the power of the gospel to continue to refine and sanctify us so that we do not fall into, slip into, dive headfirst into this religious judgmentalism of everyone out there. It's not us because we got it all on lockdown and I'm scared to let anyone know that there's sin in my life as well. So what I will do is just continue to point it out in others' lives rather than asking the Spirit of God to sanctify my heart before I say a word about anyone else's heart. The gospel is for both of us. The gospel is for us judgmental people and for us lost people, okay? It's for both, and we need it. We, both groups, if there was only two, both groups need it to change us, okay? Both groups need it to sanctify us. Both groups need it to save us because none of us can be righteous before the Lord on our own. None of us. And that's what Paul says in chapter three. We're in chapter three, okay? <laughs> we're not gonna get there. I'm just telling you right now, like we're just not gonna get all the way to chapter six, or at least we're gonna try, but right. This is this is the this is what Paul says in Romans chapter three. This is his point, right? If you go to chapter three, verse nine, you see essentially what, what Paul says is going to say here, like, in regards to, like, okay, who is better? Who is more righteous? Is it, the, is it the religious person, the proverbial Jew that has all the promises of God and the law and is, like, walking through the motions like uh, a, perfect, a perfect Christian soldier but on the inside has a heart that's darkened by judgmentalism and hypocrisy and sin? 
Or is it the person over here who, right, who doesn't have all of the external trappings of what it means to be a super spiritual person? But inside their heart is like, Lord, I, I, I want to follow you. I need you to... I need you to change who I am. I need you to sanctify me down to my very down to, down to my very soul. Like, Lord, please do a work in me. What, who's the gospel for, right? Which one is more righteous? Which one is more godly? And what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9 and other places, he said this. He's like, hey, look, uh, what shall we conclude then? Are we Jews any better than Gentiles? Uh, not at all. We already have made the charge, he says, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. He goes on to say it like this. Um, He quotes out of several verses in the Psalms. He says, there is no one that is righteous, not even one. There is no one that is righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God, There is no one who understands. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so he says then in verse 20, He summarizes all of that by saying this, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by being really good and following all the rules. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Okay, so if we come then If we come then to a place as Christian brothers and sisters or as non-believers, right? Wherever we find ourselves in the morning and we say, okay, well, if if the point has been made, right? That sin and godlessness and wickedness is deeply within the heart of each one of us and that our hearts are are being darkened, right? Our our spiritual ears are being numb to the voice of the Holy Spirit, that we are in danger of the wrath of God being revealed on us in the day of the Lord because of our sin. And if we know that that exists for everyone and that I am not righteous and they are not righteous and no one, no one is righteous, no one can produce their own right standing before God. Righteous means, righteousness means a right standing before God. If, if no one is righteous in this current condition, then how? That seems pretty bleak. That seems pretty hopeless. That seems, if I'm honest with myself and I know that, I, that I'm in that group, then, then what, what do we do? What do we do? If we are not righteous on our own and we cannot produce righteousness on our own and we cannot, we, we, we cannot stand in a right place before God on our own, then what then shall we do? And what Paul says here is that, is that righteousness, righteousness cannot be produced or earned or strived for 
or bought or worked hard enough for. We cannot work hard enough, earn it, strive for it, grab it on our own, produce it on our own. So how are we ever considered righteous before God? How could we ever be considered righteous before God? And the answer is in Romans chapter three, is that righteousness comes to us as a gift from God. That we cannot produce it on our own. We cannot find it on our own. We cannot earn it or strive for it or work for it hard enough in order to be able to attain it. And so the only way that right standing before God can be ours is if it's given to us as a gift from God. You can't do it on your own. I will give you it. It will be a gift for you. Well, how does that gift of righteousness come to us then? If we know that we need righteousness as a gift, then how do we receive the gift? What Paul says is the gift of righteousness that comes from God in heaven is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. That you will be given the gift of right standing before God through your faith in Jesus Christ. Some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible are here in this little section, right? Look at uh, Romans chapter 3, verse, starting at verse 21, right? It says, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testified. Now listen right here. This righteousness from God comes. So where does the righteousness come? Say it out loud, you know it. From God, right? This righteousness comes from God, right? This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. Listen, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? You heard that verse before? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Now listen, Paul, Romans 3.23, that really famous verse, is really just a summary of everything that Paul said in Romans 1, 2, and 3. Right? Paul is just like, hey, let me summarize again in case anyone wasn't listening for the first three chapters of my letter. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The righteousness of God now only comes to you through faith in Jesus Christ. So the, Roman, the Romans reading this letter and getting to Romans 3.23, all of us are being like, yeah, great verse, tattooed on my arm. Everyone who originally read it was probably like, Paul, we get it, man. You've been saying it for the last three chapters already. We're there, we're with you. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I need, I need righteousness to come to me as a gift from God through faith in Jesus Christ, not of my own works. He says this, then he adds, we are, we are not just, um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then verse 24, it says, and we are justified to be justified 
the term justification is a legal term, okay? came from like the court system, right? means to be, to be declared not guilty. Right? So we were, we were standing in the place of guilt. We were standing in the place of having been like big guilty stamp, right? On the judge's, on the judge's declaration. But now we have been justified, which means the guilty, we, we don't have a guilty stamp. We have a not guilty stamp. As we stand before God in right standing before God, we are declared not guilty. We have been justified. How? Freely. Freely. Without charge to us. Without working or boasting or striving or getting there because of how good we are, right? We are made not guilty before the Lord, not because we follow every religious, like, law, rule, code, value, right? We are justified freely through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The grace, the unmerited favor, meaning you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, it was a gift given to you out of the heart of love that the Lord has and desire for you to be declared not guilty in his sight and have right standing before him through his son. I'm like, geez, why didn't Jesus just do that right for, why didn't God just do that right from the get-go? You go on in verse 25, you see exactly what happened, right? We're talking about Jesus here, right? So for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or a propitiation of sin, right? So that the sin of the people, right, would be, would be done away with, would be wiped clean, would be covered by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ shed upon the cross. And listen, this is very important. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because if we read clearly in chapter one of Romans, we clearly see that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, is being revealed upon the wickedness and godlessness of sin that exists in the world. Right? Now, now it would it would make it, it might seem to make sense. We're like, okay, so God just forgot about it all. That the that the wrath of God was being revealed because sin needs to be dealt with in a just and holy manner, and that God just said, okay, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm just, I'm just, it just doesn't matter. Forget about it, because he can do that, right? Because he's sovereign and he's God, okay? But, but that's not actually what happened, right? The way, the way that the scripture reads, not just here in Romans, but uh, elsewhere, is that, is that God did not just be like, okay, uh, forget about it all. It just doesn't matter because now we have Jesus, no, it, it, actually, it actually says that, that God visited the justice that was required at the, at the presence of sin, that he, he visited the wrath and justice upon Jesus. Okay? 
It's not that he was just like, okay, sin doesn't matter anymore. It's like, no, sin actually does matter. And the wrath of God is being revealed against it. And the justice of God is still important. But I will not level that justice upon those who have called out in faith to Jesus. I will instead level the justice and wrath for sin upon Jesus himself. And then those who call out in faith to Jesus, right, will now be considered righteous and justified because of the sacrifice that was made by him, right? So what was ours by, like, what we deserved in death because of sin, Jesus received on our behalf so that what was Jesus's based on his holiness could be given to us which was eternal life. Jesus got what we deserved so that we could receive what he deserved, right? And so Paul here says that the righteousness of God is a gift. It's not something that we can earn. He he says um, later, um, that it's a gift from you, so that he says in verse 27, where then is boasting? It then is, where then is boasting? It is excluded. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Paul follows, follows this up in Romans chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, when he says, um, but for but also for us to whom God listen God will credit righteousness for who God credits righteousness for us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead He was delivered over to our death or over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. But listen, the the question is, is that why, what would motivate God to do all of this? What would motivate God to visit his justice and his wrath on Jesus rather than on us? What What would motivate God to go through all of this, to strive with the heart of men and women, right? to continually call them into repentance and visit conviction upon them so they can turn and be in right relationship with him? What would be the motivation there? Like, what does, why, God? Why waste all that time, right? Why go through all of that? Like, I I know me, I'm going to disappoint you. Why go through it all? Well, Paul is sure to help his readers to help us understand exactly why God would give us, give us the gift of righteousness through his son Jesus rather than just snapping his fingers and making it all happen. He says it in chapter 5, verse 8, among other places. He says this, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The, 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 the reason, the reason it all happened, the reason God did it, 
is not because God wanted to make some complicated religious system that we would have to find our way through, right? No, but that the, that the reason that God did it was because of his tremendous love for you. God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are no longer burdened by the yoke of slavery to sin and death, but through our faith in him and uniting with Jesus Christ by faith and in our baptism, we experience new and resurrected life. That we are no longer kept in chains, enslaved to our sin, but we now have the power to live in the freedom of God's, like in the, in the freedom of God's freedom from our sin, which is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter six. It says in the same way, verse 11, you can count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Like our identities now have been replaced. We are no longer dead in our sin and enslaved to our sin, unable to wrestle free from the things that are tearing at our heart and soul. We have been set free from it because it has been put to death by faith in Jesus Christ. That the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the death of our sin and that the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of the grave is our resurrection to new life. That we are now set free to live that life, right? In power over the things that have enslaved us in sin. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, listen here, this sounds like we're now, we now have a choice and we now have power and we now have the ability to experience victory over sin. Listen to how Paul says this in Romans 6, 12 and following. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't let it. Do not offer. You, you have power to make a choice here. I don't have to offer my sin. Or I don't have to offer parts of my body as instruments of wickedness. But I can rather offer myself to God as the one who has been brought from death to life. I can offer the parts of my body to him not as an instrument of death and sin, but as an instrument of righteousness because sin is no longer my master because I am not under the law, but I am under the grace of God now. I am not powerless to offer myself as a slave to the Lord. I am not a slave to sin any longer because God has changed my identity through faith in Jesus Christ. I am not under the chains of sin any longer. And what Paul says in Romans 6, 15 through 23, which is what we're going we're, to, we're done for today, but it's what we're going to talk about next week, okay, is this, because Paul kind of, he uses the same language to describe um, a new type of slavery. <laughs> okay? we, have been, we had been slaves to sin unable to break the chains of sin in our lives on our own, right? Jesus Christ had to break this had to break the chains for us. But now since those chains have been broken, are we free from being slaves? Paul says no. 
You're, you're not free from being a slave. You're just a slave to something else now. It's the most beautiful kind of slavery. It says you are now a slave to righteousness. You are now a slave to righteousness. Most of us walk now in the freedom of our Christian life being like, I am free. I am free to do whatever I want, be whoever I want. Christ Jesus has set me free from the power of sin and death and the grave. And this is great, complete freedom, right? It is, for, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free, right? Well, yes and no, right? Because we are, we are not free to do whatever we want. We are still slaves. We are just slaves to righteousness. That our lives are marked with a, with a focus towards righteousness. That's the first six chapters of Romans, um, kind of. I honestly, um, this isn't like, you know, I, I don't, it's not, you're, you're not getting world-class preaching or teaching here or anything like that. But what I will tell you is that the, the sermons in Romans from the first like section that we did back in the fall, it was like before Christmas. If you go on our YouTube channel, Conduit Ministries YouTube channel, you can, you can rewatch all the sermons Right? You can listen to them in podcast format as well. And if you want to get a sense, you want to kind of get caught up to where we are in Romans, you can go, go back and watch some of those sermons, listen to some of those podcasts. It will help maybe prime the pump for what we are doing here in the next few weeks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us. We thank you especially uh, this morning, Lord, for the gift of righteousness that has been offered to us through faith in Jesus Christ. That in that grace, Lord, that we have been justified freely, Lord, not not of ourselves so that no one can boast, Lord, but something that you have done on our behalf through Jesus. Lord, we come to you and to him in faith this morning. Lord, asking that you would continue to speak conviction into our lives that we may respond, Lord, with a heart that is eager to repent and to turn to you. Lord, that we may be set free from the power of sin and may live fully, Lord, no longer as a slave to sin and death, but as a slave to righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Conduit, you are loved. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. See you tomorrow.